And I think the the optimal flow would be, oh, I launched a new app and like, let's say it's on Lens, but let's not even talk about it. Let's say I just had, I just created this new app and I see my friend that, you know, doesn't care about crypto at all. And I'm like, hey, you should try out this new app. It's, it's better than, you know, anything that's already out there. And that's all I have to tell them. I don't have to tell them it's blockchain. I don't have to tell them it's Web3. They don't need to have a wallet. They go to the app. They don't have an account, so they, they press a button to create an account. Under the hood, there's something having to do with either, either using their email or their uh, OAuth, or let's say they choose to use MetaMask. They have all those options to create an account. They create an account, they start interacting, and the gas is subsidized by the protocol because it's so cheap now that most of the, the protocols that are even going to make it are going to be below one cent per transaction. And people are going to do interesting stuff with data availability to make it to where you can have hundreds of thousands of transactions that can flow through for a few dollars or something like that. All these things need to come together and that's kind of where we need to be by the end of this year. Hello and welcome to another episode of Devs Do Something. Today's guest is Nader Dobbit, the Director of Developer Relations at Aave. Nader has had a really, really positive impact on many, many devs across Web3. And in this episode, we try to get behind the scenes on how Nader approaches things like creating developer content, building developer communities, and both building and maintaining high quality APIs and developer tooling. If you work in DevRel or you're just building a a product that is meant to be used by many, many developers. I think you're going to get a lot out of this episode. Nader is a master of his craft. I've learned a lot from him personally, and this episode was a lot of fun for me to record. So sit back, relax, and I hope you enjoy. As devs, we all love hackathons. They're a great way to boost your skill set, meet other engineers, and add to your portfolio of work. At Superfluid, we've sponsored many hackathons and decided to start putting on a hackathon of our own, the Superfluid Wave Pool. This hackathon is a little bit different though in that it's continuous, it's always open. You can submit any project built on Superfluid at any point throughout the month and have a chance to earn thousands of dollars in prizes depending on how your project stacks up. In just the last couple of months, we've seen dozens of teams build really amazing projects that run the gamut from superfluid developer tutorials to full-fledged applications uh, to a proof-of-concept superfluid StarkNet implementation that we thought was really, really impressive. So we encourage you to check it out today. You can learn more by going to superfluid.finance slash wavepool. That's superfluid.finance slash wavepool. Happy hacking. All right, so we're here today with Nader. It is also Nader's birthday. We appreciate you being here on your birthday. Uh, so welcome, man. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, of course. Of course. We're really excited to talk through a lot of things today related to developer education, developer communities, and developer tooling. But before we do that, you have, I think, a really fascinating story. Um, can you just walk through how you got into this world of Web3 before we get into some of the other stuff? Yeah, I think that it was kind of a progression of me just being in tech for a while and being a developer and following my interests along with like the things that I think would be 
the ch- more challenging problems that could be worked on that um, would be a good place to, to be for a few years. And I had kind of had worked in a couple of different areas from mobile development to cloud computing to just front-end JavaScript all the way back to kind of like Angular days. And while working on uh, cloud computing and serverless tech, tech at AWS for a few years, I kind of discovered uh, the blockchain space and um, Web3 and some of these ideas around decentralized public protocols. And it just became, you know, really, really exciting and interesting to me. And I thought it'd be really cool to kind of work on it full time. And therefore, I, uh, you know, went out of my way to try to make the jump. And that was in early 2021. So almost two years now. So that's kind of how long I've been doing this and having a great time through all of the ups and downs. Yeah, the ups and downs are are very real. Uh, We're we're feeling them now. But yeah, I I think what's interesting about you is you've been somewhat vocal about the importance of just following curiosity and interests, right? Uh, I I find that to be kind of refreshing because I think a lot of people, they get kind of ideological about what you should work on and they'll kind of moralize like, you should work on this or you should work on that and my thing that I work on is the best thing. So like, how have you approached following some of these these rabbit holes? Are you just kind of like, somewhat open-ended with it where you leave some open time for yourself to explore new things? Like how, how have you decided to, to get into some of the things you've got into throughout your career? Yeah. I mean, I always have just followed my curiosity. Um, I, I kind of try to keep up with whatever is happening in a way that gives me enough, like I would say, uh, of, a, of a view into all of the different areas of technology that that are kind of, you know, being explored at that time that might be something that I could take my skill set and apply or maybe spend some time learning something new. So, you know, I've, I've done some stuff with AI and ML. Uh, I've done some stuff with cloud. I've done stuff with mobile. Um, I keep up with Stack Overflow. I follow people on GitHub. I um, keep up with uh, Hacker News, follow people on Twitter. And, you know, you just see a million things come out every day. You just, you just have its endless feed information. And, um, you know, sometimes someone will post something that seems interesting to me and I might bookmark it, go back, uh, follow up with it later. And then, you know, if it's something that I find really interesting, I might dedicate even more time to it. And I think that, you know, by keeping up with all this stuff and as a developer kind of sometimes building with these tools, it just opens your mind to all of the different possibilities and the things that you can do. And um, I feel, you know, since I've been in, in this space for a little over 10 years, I've had I've been fortunate enough to have the experience to do a lot of different things. And I think that knowledge ends up just kind of um, almost like snowballing. And, you know, if you stay specialized in one thing for 10 or 20 years, that's great. You're going to actually probably make a lot of money and be very, very good at that thing. Um, But like, you know, for me, what I've kind of done is like spend a few years specializing in one thing and then moving on to something else. But when you when I say moving on, it's not really like leaving that thing behind. It's more like, okay, I understand this thing well enough that I've kind of gotten that Pareto principle type of thing where I can do like 80% of what I might want to do with that without really having to dive in and be the best of, of the uh, of the best in the whole world. But I can build pretty much anything with mo- with mobile. I can build pretty much anything with cloud. Um, now I'm I'm in this blockchain space, but I'm also using a lot of the stuff that I learned in the past, design stuff, web stuff. So now I can kind of, 
you know, come up with an idea and, and I have enough knowledge and enough experience to be able to pretty much build anything. Now, some people are a lot smarter than me and they can probably do this after like one year of like, you know, and there, there are a lot of people out there. Miguel um, comes to mind. He's like uh, someone that I follow on Twitter. He's like a young kid. Like I call him kid. He's like, you know, just uh, in the, probably in his twenties, but he's the type of person I feel like he understands a very wide breadth of things. And he's also very skilled at all of those things almost. And like, you know, people like that are amazing. But for me, it takes me years sometimes to get to that point with just one technology. <laughs> so yeah, Miguel is a machine. Uh, I'll yeah. put a link to to Miguel, your, your Twitter out there if you're listening, uh, so people can see your work. But so one thing I've struggled with, and this is, this might be a little bit more of a, an issue in Web3, maybe it's not. There's so many new things coming out. Like it, all this stuff is is often so interesting, right? And you know, if once you learn one thing, you know you can learn another thing, right? And you start to be able to pick things up relatively quickly. But one thing I've struggled with is like occasionally having to almost put blinders on and focus on something even long enough just to get to that 80% phase. But it oh, doesn't yeah. happen overnight. It still takes a little bit of focus. So do you ever, like, how do you approach that? Do you ever have to put blinders on yourself and say, hey, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta turn off Twitter for a little bit and focus on this one thing? Oh yeah, all the time. I mean, pretty much every day I have to do that for at least a few hours. I turn off all of my notifications and I just work on something and I try not to get distracted. And if there's something that I want to to learn or do, I'll set aside time for it and I and I just won't quit until I've accomplished that thing. Like 99% of the time you're going to get over that final hump where you probably are going to get stuck and then you're going to be frustrated and then you get over it. and that's where like that really powerful learning comes in is when you actually solve that problem that you weren't able to find the answer to online um, that you kind of had to figure out yourself. And um, yeah, like for instance, one of the things that I've been learning lately has been XMTP, which is like this new messaging protocol, really cool. It directly applies all of these really powerful ideas around blockchains and decentralization and composability and shared uh, data and shared infrastructure and applies them to a real world use case, which is kind of like direct messaging. And just like, how I feel like a lot of the properties of, of smart contracts and DeFi and, and Web3 and, and, and all this stuff in general just brings a, around a lot, a lot of these ideas. The real world implementations of these ideas have been kind of few and far between, to be quite honest, and my two years of being here. And XMTP is kind of an outlier to that. It actually is a very valuable, a really cool thing that makes a lot of sense in a real world, everyday scenario that everyone in the world already does. So everyone is, you know, messaging each other. What if you could kind of take your inbox and instead of having a new inbox for every application that you use, like Instagram, Twitter, um, Facebook, I don't know, Telegram, like you have all these separate things. What if we could all share the same messaging protocol and kind of have this one inbox that is shared by every application? That wasn't really possible before because every app has their own implementation. But with XMTP, it's kind of the shared protocol that everyone can can kind of build upon. So that's something that I thought was really exciting. So I was like, okay, I'm going to spend some time figuring this out. Usually I like set aside a day or two, but I ran into a serious uh, challenge for myself around closures with React that I hadn't, you know, dealt with with streams and stuff in a long time. And it ended up taking me like a week and I got behind on some of my other work, but I finally figured it out, got it working. And yeah, so that's a very natural thing to do. And I think if you if you don't do that, then you're, you know, either like gifted to where that like, you don't need to do that, or maybe you're actually falling behind where you could be if you if you kind of decided, 
instead to, to set aside some of that focused time and, um, and just work on something until you figure it out. Yeah. So, I mean, I think what you just did right there, and I'll, I may, I'll ask a follow-up question on this, but you just kind of explained how you approach, like the why and how you approach learning a new protocol, right? So you found XMTP, who are doing very cool things, by the way. We should actually have someone from XMTP on to deep dive some of this stuff. But you found XMTP, you're like, wow, this is fascinating. Like, this is a really powerful concept. This is something I, sh- I feel like I should learn about. You then go through this process. And I think that a lot of people have that initial instinct, right? They're like, wow, this is really cool. Uh, I want to learn how this works. And I think that there are a lot of different failure modes people have. Like they'll either not produce anything, right? So that maybe they read a bunch of docs and they messed around with an SDK, but nothing was created, right? So they don't have anything to show for it. And they, they might not actually truly have the depth of learning because they didn't actually finish anything. Or I've seen people go the other way where, you know, you said you, said you got a little behind in your other work. I've seen people get way behind in their other work and just go so deep down this one thing without really evaluating like, all right, Maybe I should like set some milestones here. So how, how do you, like from your point of view, how do you approach this? Do you go in right away and really make a connection between this is interesting and here's the thing I need to produce? Or like, like how, do you, how do you think about this? If you have a process at all, I think people would be very curious. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, continuing, I'm continuing on a day-to-day basis to evaluate everything around me and um, kind of, you know, sub maybe subliminally or whatever you would call that and like subconsciously placing a priority around like what I might want to, to apply in my future, like learnings or actually building stuff. Like, is is this something that I should learn? And, um, you know, I just kind of like keep tabs of, of all the things that I see around book, start book, uh, bookmarking stuff, you know, that's kind of like the way I keep up with it. And, um, sometimes I'll just, you know, see the same thing a few times. I'll go read, read about it. I'll, try to understand the value proposition of that technology, understand the other options maybe that are out there, the, the team behind it, all, all types of stuff. And then once something kind of rises uh, like above everything else, then I will dedicate some time to kind of learn it. And, and it's usually something that I think is going to be that uh, valuable like in the future, or maybe that's something that's been around for a long time and I just wasn't aware of it. Or um, maybe it's something that I think fits very well into my existing skill set that is uh, really valuable. And yeah, and then at that at that point, I will try to just build something with it. And that's kind of always been like the uh, way that I learn stuff. And yeah, I think a lot of people probably learn the same way is uh, they build something with it. And then for me, I go a step further and I try to teach it. Because like when you build something with it, you learn a lot. And then when you try to explain it, you end up realizing, you know, like only half of what you thought you knew. And then you have to go back and dive into a a bunch of other stuff. And then when you finally uh, like learn it, build with it and then teach it, you kind of are really probably far long enough that you could kind of use it in a production environment, but also just understand where it fits in with everything else. So if someone wanted to build an app today and they were like, okay, I want to build the next Twitter or something, I could kind of go back on all the domain knowledge that that I have and understand like the different ways you can do it and the trade-offs between the different ways. And yeah, the more that you learn, the, the more that you kind of understand. And it's kind of this compounding effect that I think all developers start realizing that they have. And it's often why like the senior developers make so much more than the um, junior developers or even the, the mid developers. You know, you often have like junior developers that can't even get a job. And then you have senior developers that are literally making like a million dollars a year. So like, like, what is the main difference between the, those two people? It's kind of hard to, to define, 
but it, I think it's just a compounding um, of all of the knowledge that they've had over time, their ability to execute, their ability to evaluate, you know, uh, different things and, and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the knowledge definitely has a compounding effect. And there's, there's a couple of things I want to come back to there uh, that, you, that you said. But I think one important question is, how, how do you prioritize things? I mean, this is going to be specific to you, right? Everyone's going to have their different way of doing this. But it might be helpful to hear, to hear how you do it so that maybe myself or other people listening can like think through this for themselves. Like, There's a really good book and talk actually called You and Your Research. I don't know if you've, you've ever seen that or heard of that. But it, it basically is this guy from like the... Mm-hmm. I don't know if it was like the like the sixties or seventies, gives like a, a a talk at one of the US military schools to a bunch of engineers. And he he walks through how to like approach doing good research. And it really applies to engineering as well. But one thing that he talks about is like you should you should think about the important problems in your space and try to work on problems that you think are important. Right. And I think everyone who's done really interesting things has some kind of list. Maybe it's in their bookmarks. I don't know if you meant Twitter bookmarks or somewhere else, but it, maybe it's in their bookmarks, maybe it's in some notion page. They have a list of things they think are important. And I'm curious as to what what your things are. Yeah, I definitely have bookmarks on Twitter on, um, you know, different places, even with my own Chrome, you know, um, bookmarks folder and and all types of stuff. And um, and, and, and really, when I start prioritizing stuff, I actually put it into a Kanban board. And it's pretty basic. It's pretty simple. I just have like a few different things. Okay, this is just on my radar. I should look into this is something I want to build with next this is the next up and when I'm going to actually build. And then there's actually in like things that I'm actually doing today. And that's, you know, just a pretty basic way that you can kind of keep up with stuff. Obviously there's people that go way, way beyond what I'm doing. They have um, these knowledge trees and they use these tools that that, that are out there and those are great. And, um, and if that works for them, that's great. But what works for me is this, it's pretty simple. Just uh, go evaluate things every couple of days, uh, every week or two, move stuff around. Oh, this is no longer interesting to me, but this one moved up in the list. Oh, I have time next week. I'm going to start building this. I'll move it over there. And yeah, it works good for me. And what are some of those like more macro things that you find really important in the space that you specifically want to contribute to? I mean, obviously, Lens is one thing. We'll talk about Lens, but I'm curious as to how that stack ranks. Yeah, definitely. Um, anything right now that has to do with like accessibility and scalability in, in a way that I can actually contribute to. Because I think a lot of the work being done at the infrastructure protocol level around scalability is actually far beyond my own domain knowledge and expertise. And so it's too technical for, for me to even feel like I could contribute to. For instance, when I was working at Celestia, we were uh, a team of like, with not, not counting me, when I say we, I'm t- really talking about them, like the most talented protocol engineers in the world probably, um, or at least some of them, and, and definitely some of the smartest people I've ever worked with. And some of those conversations that were like happening were just so far out of my, you know, understanding that I was un- not only unable to contribute to them, but I didn't even understand what the hell they were talking about. And uh, that wasn't very fun because then I feel like I can't really contribute and I'm not like helping anyone. Um, so they're like, you know, I'm starting to realize there are certain areas that I can help with and that I'm good at. And those are like usually at the application level or integrating like front ends into some of these protocols and helping build out APIs that interact with the protocols once they're already launched, maybe building out APIs and stuff. But like for me, um, you know, specifically some of the stuff I'm, I'm excited about uh, right now are like Fuel Labs. Fuel Labs is a parallel execution layer or, or you could almost, it, it, it's going to be 
end up being a couple of different things. It's going to be a roll-up on Ethereum. It'll also probably be a roll-up on Celestia. It'll also probably be its own standalone L1. But it's going to provide like a very, very superior user experience compared to what we already have today. It has a lot of uh, things built in that are really cool, like better developer tooling built directly by the field team. So it'll have, it, it does have things like its own language that is really nice to use, it's kind of like a Rust-based domain-specific language. It has its own indexer. Um, it has a really nice CLI and tooling and all types of stuff. So Fuel is definitely at the top of my list. Um, you always probably hear me talking about um, Arweave and Bundler Network specifically is like a really nice protocol on top of Arweave, allows you to do permanent storage and that opens the door to a million different types of things you could do, file storage and images and videos, but also permanent application uh, development. And also people are using Bundler and, and Arweave is almost like a, uh, a scalability primitive on top of a maybe an L1 or L2 blockchain, like like what you're going to see what we end up doing with it soon with um, with Polygon. So Arweave, Fuel, definitely uh, excited and interested in a, a account abstraction. And I think, you know, Fuel actually has account abstraction uh, as a first-class citizen. You also have Beconomy, which is a um, team that has kind of built out a their own implementation of EIP 4337 along with like a um, some infrastructure that allows you to implement the account abstraction uh, use cases I guess you could say through their platform right now today on pretty much any any uh, of the main chains that's really cool um, I, and then finally like I'm a big fan of serverless obviously and then like you know I was working at AWS for a while and Vercel was like one of the things that I think really came on and became really popular because it provided like a really nice uh, developer experience. So there's a protocol and team called Fleek, and they're building out something like Vercel, but for decentralized networks. So you have all of the same benefits of, of something like Vercel, but you also have permanence, immutability, and um, you know censorship resistance and all that stuff with a similar quality uh, user experience. So that, that's a lot, but but I'm definitely interested in all that stuff. Yeah, I love it. Yeah, I, I can second some of the the interesting things about Fuel. We've had we've had two uh, guests in the past from Fuel. Cami came on a, a little while back, and Nick Dodson from from their team as well too. So if you're curious about Sway or how they approach developer experience, I, you should definitely check out some of those previous episodes. Ooh, yeah, definitely. I need to li- go back and listen to those yeah, two. They were good. They were good. Um, and Sway's cool. I, I've messed around with Sway a little bit, but. Yeah, we, I, I appreciate the breakdown about like how you think about these different things and what you think are important and the things you think are important right now. Um, I think people should should reflect on that for themselves. If they're in the space, like there's a lot of great opportunities to build things right now. What do you find important? And start to model your actions around that. I think you're a really good example of someone who's been able to do that. Uh, going back to teaching, right? This seems to be the last step in a lot of these journeys you go on where you you invest a lot of time learning, you build something, and then you teach it, right? You, you've you created a lot of really, really high-quality developer content. I've watched some of your stuff. People listening to this have watched some of your stuff or read some of your stuff. And you have an article you wrote about building developer communities where you you distilled a lot of learnings you, you've, you've received over the years in building developer communities. And one really interesting piece of that was this concept of building bridges. So that really resonated with me. And I think it'd be really cool if you if you could share that and the way you think about building bridges. Yeah, totally. I think it's 
kind of something that a lot of people do already and they don't really think about it. Um, but it really was a, it was a talk that I'd seen given at NG Vegas, which is like an angular conference in Las Vegas. This had to have been like seven years ago. It was like right when I started getting into understanding like the different communities and stuff that were happening in the software industry. And I started going to a few meetups and conferences and this was one of those. And the guy that was giving me the talk kind of, uh, I think it was called building bridges or something like that, but, but it was really the same thing that I was kind of talking about in that blog post that I've kind of been thinking about nonstop since that talk seven years ago. And uh, I'll even link to, I think his video in that uh, blog post, but yeah, it's really just, um, this idea, like, and I think it resonates, especially for people who are self-taught, um, because if you are a self-taught developer, you came from a place of like not knowing anything to being able to be employed and, and probably have a better quality of life than you did before. And that is very like a meaningful like change in, in someone's life, you know, going from probably not nearly as successful to becoming a software engineer. You know, we're typically some of the highest paid people in the world. For me, it was just a really shocking experience going from like minimum wage type of stuff to be able to do what I'm doing now. And, you know, as a self-taught developer, pretty much everything that I learned was put online by someone for free. And I don't know, I just always thought that that was so crazy that, that I could go online for free, look at all these blog posts and videos and open source projects and Stack Overflow answers that people provided, and then be able to apply that myself and become, you know, successful based on that. And then the general idea, though, in that Building Bridges talk is that, like, you kind of try to... Um, understand and appreciate all the people that have done that to get you to where you were. And then once you're able to to do the same thing, you start giving back and trying to help other people as well. And then, you know, he kind of talked about different ways that you can do that and everyone's different. So some people are good at some things and some people are good at other things. So you kind of like try to understand where you can give back and you try to, you know, really go out of your way to to do that um, um, kind of like consistently and, and you know, actually maybe even putting it like as a priority in your life to do that. And, um, and, and not only is that just a good thing to do, like giving back and all that, but it actually ends up helping you as a person, depending on like what you want to do with your career, I guess, if you're just an engineer and you want to stick at the same company for a while, like it might not be a big important thing for you to do. But if you're someone that is a content creator, or maybe you're like me and DevRel, or you just want to kind of network and meet more people, when you put your own content out there and you kind of help and teach other people, you end up building like a really great network of people because people start like recognizing your name. And um, often if you put out something that is valuable, someone will even get a job or start a company or, or build something that's valuable based on what they've taught, that, what you've taught them. And then they, they uh, like end up, you know, feeling like this close connection with you and you end up may, maybe becoming friends with them. Yeah. It's just like this general idea of, of helping other people and, and stuff once you're able to. And it's more like putting like what that would look like into a concrete, you know, explanation. And that's kind of what I outlined in that blog post. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think the message is really strong. And I'm, I'm self-taught as a developer as well. And it, it, it was amazing 
Like, cause, cause it's one of those things where you think, all right, I got to go back to school for this if I want to do this. And I never felt like I was good enough, like for years, I was like, I'll have to go back to school. That's you, you literally just said the exact same thing that went through my head for at least six or seven years. Yeah, And then there's the boot camp thing. And you're like, ah, these, these also seem kind of expensive and you do research and they, t- and then in the reviews, they tell you that the material was online anyway. And then you go and, and research to see if you can find the material and it's all there. And there are these really generous people like yourself who give this knowledge away, right? Because somebody else helped them. So I think it's really, really powerful. And it does make you feel like a lot of the industry is, is, is like kind of like win and help win. And pe- people want to all succeed individually, but they also want to help other people. So I think it's a cool place, cool place to be for that reason. But more tactically with, with the teaching, like when you go in, I mean, I'm sure you've given lots of talks and workshops and when you create, you mean, you create lots of videos. How do you, how do you prepare for these things? Do you have a consistent process? I'm sure people listening to this that have to give lots of developer talks and workshops would like to know. Oh yeah. I mean, I typically, um, try not to give too many different talks and workshops in a year. I try to keep it down to maybe like six or, or so for the whole year. And, um, therefore if you have like six pieces of content, you can actually just keep giving those over and over and over and you, and you're providing like maybe a better version of that every time you do it, because you've kind of learned a little bit the last time and you can change things in it to make it you know a little different. But generally I don't kind of come up with a brand new talk or a brand new workshop every time. It's typically, Oh, I've done maybe a blog post or a video or something already on this topic. And now I want to turn that into a talk. And then I already have pretty much all the material already. I just make that into a new format. And or maybe I've done a talk and I'm going to turn that into a workshop or I've done an open source project and I want to show people how to build that. So it's kind of often just repeating something that like I did one time and then I can reformat that in like four or five different ways. And then again, I try not to give like a bunch of different talks every year. I try to give just I find a few really valuable talks and I try to give those over and over. So that's kind of the way I approach it. Um, I know people that do try to create something brand new every time and they always get really burnt out and really stressed out. And the quality often isn't that good either because they're trying to kind of create something brand new every time. And it's a really a lot of work. You know, sometimes a talk can take you weeks to put together. And imagine doing that over and over, like, er, you know, every time you had a new talk, it would actually be very, very uh, exhausting. And, and, and then also like who has, I mean, there are definitely people that do, but like, I don't have that many things that I can say that, that are kind of like that different. Like I can't come up with a new idea. That's, that's that crazy. And that interesting, uh, 20 times a a year, I might have a few things that people find interesting, but that's kind of about it. Yeah. So, I mean, (laughs) you, you solve the problem maybe one time in a, in a blog post or in one talk, and then you repackage it over and over again. And I think, I think that's actually a really good point. People don't, I don't think people think like, think about that enough. Like you, you can get a lot of work out of one really well done thing, right? A lot of work out of one really exactly. good tutorial or, or, or workshop that can be repackaged. Some people make an entire career out of one thing. Some people do one thing and they, they do it for the rest of their lives nonstop. And, and, you know, you see that a lot in entertainment. Someone comes out with like a hit song, they, they tour it, they remix it. They just do it for 20, 10 or 15 years. They, they're happy. Um, I see that in the software industry. Like I've seen someone give the same talk for three or four or five years, just that one talk over and over and over. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, hey, man, leverage. You got, you got leverage if you do one thing really, really well. You can get much more out of it. 
Uh, how about okay? So how about on the other side, right? I, people people sometimes will give advice on how you should prepare for a talk or what you should try to do or how you should try to come across. Is there any bad advice you see people give to to developer educators and people that are trying to get on stage and promote new things? Maybe one piece of bad one bad piece of advice is try to create new talks every time. But I'm curious if there's anything else. <laughs> yeah. Um, bad advice. Um, I don't know. It's hard for me to, to kind of think because there's a lot of people that give advice that I sometimes might find questionable, but, but, but it actually is working for them. So it's kind of like hard for me to say like not to do that because if that, if that works for you, I think one piece of advice I would give, that's not really bad advice, but it's just, I would experiment and try different things and find out what works for you. And, um, you know, over time, you're just going to get better. And, and, you know, I wouldn't ever get frustrated with that first talk that you give, because it's probably not going to be that great. And everyone is in the same boat, like the first time anyone did anything, very rarely do they feel really happy about how they performed that time. It's usually, you know, a really crappy thing. And then like a year or two later, they look back and they've come a long way. And you just keep doing it over and over. And, you know, people are, if you're giving a talk or, or something in front of a people, you know, most of the time people are there to support you and they're going to be very supportive of you. Even if you mess up, even if you say something that isn't quite right, um, you know, 99% of the people there are, are usually good people. And that's kind of the way you have to look at it. You know, you, you do often hear these stories once in a while where someone comes up to them after the talk and tries to point out something wrong or negative you don't even don't you shouldn't even worry about that because like if someone's like that you don't really you know well depending on how they come at you they might be coming at you with goodwill but but if someone's coming at you just to be annoying you don't really want to be friends with that person anyway so like fuck them <laughs> yeah i'll also say that uh if you're really if you're struggling with that if you're struggling with feeling like man i feel like an imposter here one thing that at least helped me i don't know if there's anything that helps you nader but one thing that helped me is just trying to approach it with with some humility like just saying, hey, look, I'm I'm learning this along with you guys. I mean, sometimes you have to be like kind of authoritative in the situation. Like if you are a DevRel lead at Superfluid, you got to know your stuff on Superfluid. But if it's a more general thing where you're just trying to give back and like you said, build bridges for other people and you give a talk and somebody has a problem with it, you could just say, hey, look, man, I'm, I'm learning alongside you. I'm just sharing what I've learned. And if somebody says anything rude back to that, they're, they're probably just an asshole, like, like you said. So that's how I see it. Mm -hmm. um, but okay, so this is leading in, yeah, this is kind of a lead in thing, but part of the article, the building, the thing with the building bridges in it, part of that article, I guess the entire purpose of the article is about building developer communities, right? So how do you, can you just like walk us through that framework a little bit for how you go about building developer communities for those who are, are curious? Yeah, I would say that it's kind of just, I don't know, like from the perspective of someone that's in DevRel, this idea of community building is is especially important, maybe. But um, going back to like what I read in the article, and even some of the stuff I talked about before, I think that when I, you know, told myself how to code, I was living in Mississippi, and then my first job offer I got was in California, so I moved there to take that. And Mississippi, especially, this was 2012. This was like, wow, that's almost that's 11 years ago. There just wasn't any tech here really you know there wasn't there weren't communities there was nothing here um even now there's still not that much but going from here to, to la where 
it was already a kind of a bustling tech scene where they had um, meetups and they had a lot of really high quality engineers that were living there that were already plugged into the developer community. I just remember almost like a, a, a shock when I was invited to a meetup in LA and I'd never been to one before and I show up and it's in this huge, huge, beautiful like warehouse that had been renovated for this tech company that was doing robotics and all kinds of stuff. And they had this really big, beautiful stage and they had probably a few hundred people there. They had waiters there that were like serving beer and food. Um, there was recruiters there from Facebook and Google and all these places. And I was kind of just blown away because I'd never seen anything like that. And it was free. And I was like, wow, how can I come here and meet all these amazing people, have free food and drinks and free knowledge. And then like, that's just like, someone is putting that on for me. And that was kind of like very, very inspiring for me. Like ever since that experience, I've always wanted to participate in those events or put those events on myself. So when I came back to Mississippi, we obviously didn't have anything like that. So I created a, a meetup group called the Jackson Area Web and App Developers, which was the first tech meetup of its kind like in Mississippi. And I tried to just copy what they did. I had uh, on a much smaller scale, obviously, but you know, just having some pizza, have some drinks, get a bunch of people together, like learn from each other and then, you know, go about our day. And that was my first experience in what I would call like community building uh, of developer communities. And that that has gone on now for, you know, X number of years. We still have that meetup going. It's now, I guess, 2023. Sorry for that sound. That's me dropping something. Um, but yeah, we, you know, we had that going on for, for a long time. I don't run it anymore. Someone else does. But that was kind of the first thing I had done that was kind of like in that realm. And since then, I've, I've always wanted to continue doing that because like, again, giving back is very, you know, uh, it's very fulfilling, honestly, for me, just doing stuff like that is fulfilling. And maybe that's a selfish, like way to, to look at it. But it is like, you know, when, when you when you put on these events, and then someone comes to you a year later, and they're like, I got a job at Tesla, or I got a job at, at Netflix, or I got my first job ever. I went from working at a, a restaurant, and now I'm making like six figures a year, stuff like that is just you can't really get enough of that. So like, once that happens, you also want to continue doing that. So you hear more and more of those things because it is really cool. So that is just now in my nature. Like I just love building developer communities and I, I've done it for free for myself, actually out of my own pocket, Mississippi. And what's even cooler is actually getting paid to do that in your job. Um, and that's kind of what I've done really since maybe I got my first DevRel job at AWS. Um, I was helping build the developer communities for different products there at Amazon. And um, I worked with the Graph Protocol for over a year. They gave me my first opportunity in, in the blockchain space. And now um, I'm working you know, with Lens and, and, and Aave and then and Web3 in general. But, but yeah, I mean, th there's a lot of stuff that goes into to building a developer community. And it really kind of just depends on a lot of different things. Like what have, what area of expertise are you trying to kind of build this community? What are the, I don't know, like types of people that are going to be interested in that tech? Is it a local thing? Is it like a global thing? Uh, there's a million different things that kind of go into it. But generally, you know, you just want to kind of get enough people around the world aware of the thing that you're doing, try to provide them with everything you could possibly give them to make them successful, get them excited about what you're doing, and then continue 
this kind of like feedback loop where the people that you've told about this thing have tried it and they either like it or they don't like it. And if they don't like it, they give you that feedback and you help the engineering teams or even maybe yourself improve stuff and then iterate and then make it better. And it's kind of like, that's how you you know can improve software. And that's kind of where communities fit into this whole like um, DevRel of, of the budget that companies put put out there is, you know, a few different things. You want awareness, marketing type of stuff, but you also want to improve the products. Makes sense. Yeah, I, I think it seems like it's something that's kind of in your DNA at this point, right? You, you love doing it. You've seen the impact. And I think for those of us working in this industry or working to build developer communities, the second you have your first couple of real kind of moments where you realize that you really did help somebody get from, you know, where they were to where they wanted to go, it tends to keep you motivated for a long period of time after that. So it might just take those those first couple of experiences to have that inspiration to keep you going uh, and doing a good job. But you also had, this is not a similar subject, but you also have a paragraph, I think, or at least a small section in that article about contracting out your weakness weaknesses in a developer community or even when just building a, a DevRel team. Can you can you ex- like unpack that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I think that we're moving into especially after COVID and during COVID, more of like a global international work environment as the best way to do business. Maybe it wasn't that way five years ago, but I think it is the best way to do that today. And going back to my work at Amazon, I remember like we were so restricted on who we could hire that we had to reject like 95% or more of the people that even applied off the bat because they couldn't move to Seattle or they lived in the wrong country or they live, or they didn't have the right papers, or, or whatever the crap was, um, and that was very shocking to me that we would like be running a software company and not able to hire ninety five percent of the people that, or even consider ninety five percent of the people that wanted to work with us. And when I say ninety five percent, it was probably more than that. Let's just be conservative and say ninety five percent. So, like, what does that even have to do with contracting out your weaknesses? Well. I think that if I was to run a company today, and I know that there are a lot of companies actually starting to do this, and this might be controversial, but I would not, not have even a single full-time employee. Instead, I would hire everyone as a contractor, but I would give them everything they would possibly need to get paid as much or more than a full-time employee, including benefits, including everything. So let's say that you would hire someone at 200K a year, and then you would also be providing them with health and life insurance, all this stuff. Like, okay, add up how much that would cost another 100,000 a year. Okay, I'm going to make I'm just going to pay you 300,000 a year and then you can actually go and like take care of all that stuff yourself. But what this opens the door to is for you to literally hire anyone in the entire world. I'm I'm talking about you're not just limited to like your time zone or your country, but you can literally hire anyone from anywhere and you're able to then find the the smartest people and the best people in the whole world to come work with you. And also provide opportunities to people that are typically not even given the, I don't know, even a response of an email from from recruiters because they live in, in Nigeria or they live in South America or they live somewhere that's not the right place. Um, but when you're a contractor, when you're hiring contractors, it doesn't matter because you're going to be paying them like for their actual contract work. And I think it's what that uh, that that's kind of the way I would do business if I was to run my own company. And I do know, like I said, a couple of new companies that are doing that and it's working out really well. Um, so with that in mind, I think that the ideal scenario obviously is to have like a DevRel team that's the best in the world and strong and they know how to do everything perfectly. But in reality, um, you know, there is 
a lot of things that kind of go into DevRel that often don't or uh, not all together in a, a specific person's like skill set. It's hard enough to find a really good engineer, but you know, you also like as a DevRel person need to be a good engineer, a good communicator. You need to be well spoken. You need to be able to like document your, you know, your open source code really well and create and learn new open source. You need to be able to speak. You need to be able to create videos. You need to be able to to create content and write. I mean, like there's literally like an endless thing, number of things that you need to do to be like a really good DevRel. So like because of that, there's just a, f- a fairly small number of people that are on the market that are good at all that. And what I've seen work really well is instead of trying to, f- to hire a team of, of perfect people, you instead hire like one or two really great people. And then you kind of find people that are good at certain things. And you then contract those people to do the work that they're good at. And sometimes that ends up like being a way to recruit also, because let's say you do have this one person that's on like a one month contract and they just crush it. You end up just hiring them full time anyway. But if you need someone to create like, let's say five or six videos, it wouldn't make sense to hire someone full time to do those five or six videos and then fire them or something. Right. Instead, it would be better to find someone who's an expert at videos, pay them a little extra, let them do the videos and then you're done and you have that. And then when you need someone to do like this specific project, you can just hire them. And yeah, you're kind of contracting out the things that you need that you don't have. And um, I think that's kind of the way that I would uh, go about doing stuff. And that's kind of the way that, that we're doing stuff even a little bit with Lens. We have this grants program where we're kind of almost uh, contracting out, you know, or it's not really even contracting out because we don't really even have a... Um, list of things that we tell people they have to do, they kind of come to us and they're like, Hey, I want to build this thing. And we're like, okay, we'll pay you, you know, money to build that. And and, and that's your thing. Like we don't own that. They, they own that. Um, but we are collaborating with some people in the community to do open source and stuff that would be closer to what I'm talking about. Makes sense. Yeah. I, I think, um, a, a quick question for you. When, when you've done this in the past, you look at doing this in the past, What's like the the typical size task you, you bounty out or contract out? Will you, will you literally just do like a, Hey, I want this feature or this video done, go do this very confined thing and we'll pay you for it? Or do you keep it somewhat more open-ended where like you hit, you have a, a much larger project where it's like, hey, we're going to work together on this for several months. We'll get it to X place and you'll get paid kind of a monthly monthly wage as you do that. Like, I guess, I guess I'm just curious because we've, we've experimented with a few of these things too and I'm curious what you've done. Yeah, I've worked, I've, I've worked kind of in a consulting type of role with a few different projects and teams in, in the blockchain space. And a good example might be we're shipping like this really, really new and advanced version of our SDK. And we want to kind of really get the word about it, out about it. So we're going to bring in this person for one or two months. We're going to uh, provide them with some guidelines to create like two videos. We're going we're gonna to release those over the course of two months that kind of give an introduction to this new SDK. We want them to create an open source project that kind of goes along with those videos so people can kind of go back and, and build and, and learn and watch and, and have something to refer to. And like for those two months of work, we might pay them $10,000 a month or something like that. And, um, and that sounds like it might be a lot of money, but when you think about a full-time employee that costs two or 300,000, it's actually cheap. Right. And then also the person that we're hiring is the best, one of the best in the world. Right. And, and like, you can't really put a price on that. 
So that's kind of a good example. Like, you know, you, you have a launch coming up, you want to get the word out, you want people to, to get excited about it, you want to get some additional, you know, reach on social media. So maybe you find someone with like a good social media following that, that um, also understands and is able to speak to that tech. And that's kind of, that, that would be one example of how you would uh, leverage that, that type of, um, you know, way of, of hiring people. Makes sense. Makes sense. So you, you, you just cheese the SDK a little bit you guys are, are working on, or maybe you guys have already finished it. Uh, yeah, we personally haven't done done a lot of contracting out on that side. We, we, well, there is someone that's building an, an SDK actually, but it's still kind of like not public yet. But yeah, we've built our own SDKs. Like uh, I built the React Native mobile SDK for Lens, which is something that we released in December, like just a month ago. And I'm about to release an updated version of that. And then our our other team built out the Lens React SDK, which is a an SDK of React hooks that just makes it really easy to build. Yeah, so we have um, we have a big focus on developer experience at Lens and at Ave that we're uh, hoping to double down on this year. How do you personally approach building developer facing products like that? SDKs, tooling, all that stuff. Yeah, I mean, I, I typically take a lot of inspiration from things that I've done in the past, and also people things that people have done elsewhere. And I think that sometimes just building in a silo, just shipping your vision will get you a long way as opposed to trying to get company and everyone's buy-in. Um, for instance, there's been so many times in my career that I wish I could go back and, and have actually just said, I'm going to just build out this thing and I'm not going to really get approval from anyone. I'm just going to do it and then show it to them. Because when you explain something to someone, it's sometimes hard to kind of get your vision across because they might be like, oh, well, what about this specific thing? Or they might want to change like these little things or they might question like someone else has already done something similar. So like, why would you do that? Like, but if you have a vision, a strong vision for something that you want to do, you can't really express that in words. Sometimes you actually have to do that thing and then show them the, the end result. And um, that's kind of the way that I go about building stuff. Like um, I'll sometimes you know, and not sometimes I'll always still run it by some people just to kind of get their their ideas on it. But I will never take their opinion so seriously that it, that it determines like what I'm going to do next. Like they might say, "Oh, that's really stupid idea," but then I'll go and continue down my rabbit hole and figure out something that I think is amazing, and then I'll just build it. Um, or they might also think it's really cool, and like that's that's cool too. But it's definitely worth getting you know, a little bit of feedback, but, but ultimately you have to kind of just decide to, to, you know, either do that thing or not do that thing, regardless of what anyone says, you know? Yeah. That's actually a really, that's a really interesting way of looking at it. I think that developer related things can be even worse than end user products sometimes because everyone has an opinion about what something should be named, right? Everyone has an opinion about what that function should be called and what it should do. And what about this edge case? So your mindset is, Hey, look, I'm just going to, I'm just going to build it. And maybe like ask forgiveness instead of instead of permission on those things, which I think is good. That's a, that's actually a good way of looking yeah, at yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, kind of, I mean, and, and it's and it's good if you're on a team that supports you in that. Like, you know, even if they question your um, what you're doing, they still support you when you decide to do it. Yeah, totally. Is there anything that you know from your career in in Web two? Is there anything that Web three is really bad at still in terms of building these kinds of developer tools? Like, what are we what are we missing? I think that in general, people underestimate how bad the UX is. They say, and they and they kind of understand that we need a better UX, but I don't think they understand how far behind we are um, for the average internet user. 
because we've gotten over all these humps and we've become used to the the things that we're using, we kind of don't realize that not only are most of the people in this space more technical than the average person in the world, um, but we also are very passionate about this stuff. And we are we are okay with like going through some pain to do the things that we want to do because we are so excited about the potential of this stuff. But if you try to tell the average person who is, you know, used to the OAuth, uh, the OAuth workflow or the OAuth flow of, of signing up to a new app by clicking a button that they instead have to go and download this browser extension, which is kind of like weird, honestly, for most people and to begin with. And then they have to understand how to save their seed phrase because if they lose that, they're never going to be able to recover their identity and their money ever again. And then they have to go and buy the right token, but you can't buy that token through MetaMask. You actually have to go sign up with your bank, wait for three days, get the right tokens, and then you have to kind of get the address out of your MetaMask and send those tokens there. And then you have to go and move those tokens to the right network because you're on the right, wrong network. Oh, and those tokens aren't even the right tokens. You then have to transfer those into something else. And then once you've done all that, you actually have to pay every time you do anything. That's a very, very bad, like a bad thing. I mean, 99% of the people in the world are not going to deal with that shit. Like literally 99% of the people in the world. I'm not kind of exaggerating here. Um, so we have a lot of work to do on on UX. And I think a lot of people kind of underestimate how much work we need to do. Totally. How about within the within the realm of the things you're working on now, right? So with things like Lens, what kind of tooling or, or projects that you do you hope that people will build that, that can make that entire experience better? I think the key, the, the if you were like, again, to apply the Pareto principle, like what's the one thing that we can do to make this so much better? I think it has all to do with how people start implementing account abstraction for different new wallets that are going to come around and maybe even existing wallets are going to imp- implement account abstraction in different ways. But really kind of moving that main... Um, account model out of an EOA and into a smart contract, and then being able to kind of apply arbitrary ideas around what it looks like to sign a transaction and and, and approve a transaction and different ways of account recovery and stuff like that is like huge. And I think that's kind of going to be the future of, you know, um, of improved UX. So you have account abstraction a la Fuel, who is kind of built first class into the protocol. You also have EIP 4337, which can be almost like a smart contract implementation into any existing protocol. And then you also have a lot of these really high, uh, I would say, quality SDKs and and services that are popping up that help you implement account abstraction uh, into any existing kind of like blockchain or any uh, existing supported um, protocol like Biconomy. And like all those things, three three things together, I think this year people are going to experiment with them and we're going to see some really, really high quality like wallets, if that, if even what you're going to call them. So, and I think the the optimal flow would be, oh, I launched a new app and like, let's say it's on Lens, but let's not even talk about it. Let's say I just, had, I just uh, created this new app and I see my friend that, you know, doesn't care about crypto at all. I'm like, hey, you should try out this new app. It's it's better than you know anything that's already out there. And that's all I have to tell them. I don't have to tell them it's blockchain. I don't have to tell them it's Web3. They don't need to have a wallet. They go to the app. They don't have an account. So they, they press a button to create an account. Under the hood, there's something having to do with um, 
either, either using their email or their uh, OAuth, or let's say they choose to use MetaMask. They have all those options to create an account. They create an account, they start interacting, and the gas is subsidized by the protocol because it's so cheap now that most of the the protocols that are even going to make it are going to be below one cent per transaction. And um, people are going to do interesting stuff with data availability to make it to where the, you know, you can have, I think, hundreds of thousands of transactions, you know, that can flow through for a few dollars or something like that. All these things need to come together. And that's kind of where we need to be by the end of this year. I mean, for the applications that I think are going to actually be taken seriously with decent adoption. Yeah, I'm with you. Hopefully we can... I mean, it, it's in the name, right? Account abstraction. We got to abstract all this stuff away from people because it's just like, like you mm-hmm. said, you actually laid out a pretty good case for why this is so important in the description of all this, of all the steps. That that was pretty good. Uh, how about specifically with with like lens tooling itself? Is there anything you guys are excited about on like the developer experience that that you guys plan to ship? I mean, I know you you can talk about the the React thing that you built in December, but. Curious as to what's on the roadmap there. Yeah, we have um, SDKs and stuff that we're continuing to, to ship and improve. We have some stuff that is going to be providing much, much better wallet experiences. Um, we have a lot of mobile apps that are being built on, on Lens that will be that are implementing the dispatcher, which is like, you know, how you can interact without having to sign transactions and stuff. Um but for the stuff that I'm focused on, yeah, I'm still going to be, I think the main thing that I'm going to be continuing to build out over the next three to six months um, for sure is going to be the mobile SDK. So with a single line of code, you can actually get started building mobile apps on Lens and it's fully configurable from there. It's essentially kind of like what React um, has with Tailwind UI. We have that for building out social applications. And I think we need... Um, to ship a web version of that, which is something we're also like uh, going to have either through directly through our team or through a, um, a grant or something like that. But we have the mobile version of that. We have the SDK. We're going to continue making those much better. We're going to be having something that ships that makes the whole wallet experience uh, better as well. But it's uh, either going to be through an external type of um, implementation that someone else is building or maybe we'll do our own thing, but that's a high priority for us. Gotcha. And you said mobile apps are hot on Lens, right? I've used Orb. I've used Lenster, right? You should go check those out if you're listening to this. But what what applications do you hope people build throughout the next year? Is there anything on your mind that maybe goes beyond just the mobile app space that you hope people build in? I'm really interested to hear and see new types of experiences that, that aren't just a copy of something else. I think that um, we understand the value of Instagram and TikTok and Twitter. And these are really great. But with with these decentralized protocols, with um, you know the ability to have payments built in, the ability to collect and, and pay people natively through the platform, you, you actually have a lot of things that you can do that are much different than what we've ever had before. So I'll, I look forward to seeing like new experiences. So for instance, one thing that's really cool is that this person launched this application that allows you to pay people to retweet you. Um, but you don't have to actually like identify that person and then send them the payment like you would in a web two app. They just click a button and because they have your address, they just directly, the payment goes directly to you. So it's a good way to kind of like try to um, incentivize marketing you know, directly through the platform. And um, what's even cooler is you can kind of programmatically add conditions. 
So you can say, okay, you can earn a $5 or $100 or even $1,000 just by retweeting this, but you have to kind of meet these conditions. And obviously for a very high value transaction, the conditions would be a lot more you know, intense. But for me, I've done something where if, if you just retweet, it doesn't matter who you are, you get a dollar or something like that. But let's say you wanted to do something for like $100, you might say this person needs to have at least a thousand followers and their followers need to, you know, be, I don't know, I actually don't know any other conditions that I might add in addition to that, but anything on chain is pretty much fair game. Very cool. Yeah, I'm, I'm interested to see some of the different advertising models as well, right? The, the marketing overlap, right? Because that's really been the, the monetary driver of Web2, ad money. And I think that there will be a lot of really interesting ways to, to port some of those things into what you guys are building at Lens. So yeah, excited for all that stuff. Nader, this has been fantastic to, to go through the way you think through like building developer communities, some of the work you're doing at Lens, building APIs, all this good stuff. The last question that we ask every guest is you know, how they see this industry evolving in the coming years. So like, let's say we go, we fast forward into 2033, 10 years from now. What do you hope our industry looks like at that point? So I think that we should, instead of thinking of blockchain and Web3 applications as completely separate or different than what else is out there, kind of like segmenting ourselves, instead, they just need to be the way that you do certain things when you're building software. I don't think that it matters that it's blockchain or not. At this point, we're getting to the point where the technologies are getting much better. And you're starting to see companies actually just decide to use these things like Instagram using Arweave for their permanent storage because they offer different types of use cases and features that just are not possible through cloud and other um, types of traditional infrastructure. So I think that we need to, to move beyond like this is Web3 and instead improve everything to the point where if someone is using one of these apps, the experience is as good or better as, as anything else that's out there. Um, and the implementation detail is what we're doing as opposed to it's the number one thing that is having the, the light shown on it. So we are building an app and, and implementation detail is, oh, by the way, it is using like a blockchain or by the way, it is using something like decentralized storage or it's using Lens. But it shouldn't be the main thing. The, the main thing should be we're building a cool app that, that provides a, a, value, a value that's beyond what it's, it else is out there. And people should want to use that. And it, it shouldn't be because it's a blockchain or a Web3 app. It should just be because it's better. And that, that's kind of where I think where we're getting now with this improved UX. And I think it now needs to move to, you know, people just building better apps and then messaging them in, in, a, in a way that is compelling for the average person. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love it. You don't, you don't choose to use an app whether based on whether or not they use a SQL database or no SQL database or something like that. So that's a great answer. I, and we, we've heard similar things amongst other guests. So. It's cool. We're, we're, we're noticing a, a trend here. Uh, but listen, Nader, thank you again cool. for your time. We'll make sure we link to all your, your socials, your YouTube channel, and your work at Lens in the show notes. Uh, and, and you know, is there anything else you want to leave our guests with today before we jump off? Um, you can follow me on Lens at natter.lens. And we are working to make the protocol permissionless. Because yeah, right now, if you want to use Lens, you still have to go through an allow list process. If you are a developer or a creator and you want a Lens profile, though, I will give you one. Just uh, reach out to me on socials, on Twitter, or on uh, whatever. Probably Twitter might be the best place to reach me. And I will allow you to list you if you are a creator or a developer. Um, and 
beyond that, in a few months, we are hoping to open the protocol to everyone and therefore not need this allow list. But um, in order to do that, we have a couple of things we need to do around scalability as well as census. I'm sorry, in, uh, um, we, we have scalability to deal with and also um, civil resistance. Because like, you know, right now we have a million people that are on the wait list and a lot of them are actually bots and stuff. So we want to make sure if someone signs up, they're a real person. And that's a challenge that we're working on. And once we have those two things uh, figured out, which is, you know, stuff we're working on uh, really hard right now, then we will open it up to everyone. I love it. Bullish, bullish on lens, as are many other people. So again, thanks for coming on and uh, we have a great rest of your day. Thanks for having me.